Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we are talking about decision making and the behaviour of investors. And who better to join us for that conversation than Head of Behavioural Finance at Oxford Risk, Greg Davies. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Welcome, Greg. Before we kick off, would you like to tell the listeners a bit about your current role and also the work that Oxford Risk does? Yeah, sure. So Oxford Risk is a firm that specializes in behavioral finance. And what we strive to do is to build software that helps people make better financial decisions. Here, we're typically talking about investment decisions of individuals or helping advisors to help their clients make better decisions. But we also look at the behavioral science around retail banking, so savings behavior, debt management, insurance decisions, and sometimes also the kind of decision-making of boards, of investment committees, of professional investors as well. But broadly speaking, it's trying to build technology that embeds behavioral science into it, that we can democratize it, we can push it out, we can make it systematized and available to people at large. Cool. Plenty of stuff I'm really keen to get into there, Greg. But before we get into the conversation, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? (laughs) I don't know, should know about me. I grew up in South Africa. And one thing that has been of absolutely no practical use to me whatsoever in my entire career since is that the last thing I did before I left South Africa was I qualified as a foot guide for dangerous game areas. Oh, wow. Leading tourists through Big Five territory. And now you lead investors through difficult decisions. <laughs> any parallels there at all? <laughs> you know, until recently, I, I haven't found any parallels at all. But I heard this podcast, which involved a guy called Boyd Varty, who's a South African tracker and game ranger, etc. And he was putting the whole concept of tracking in the context of, well, he was talking about tracking and instantly had all these parallels to me between how we plan for the future. Because he was talking about tracking as exploring the emergent future. You're moving through the bush. You don't know what's coming, but you do know where you want to go. And you're constantly trying to refine your knowledge and make decisions with this boundary of uncertainty moving forwards in front of you. And I quite like those parallels, but it's a fairly recent click of two things in my life that I hadn't really thought about as being connected at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a blog at least or even a book there to be written I think about that about the connections between leading people through the financial jungle and leading people through the um, well it's not the jungle I suppose the savannah and the game reserves of South Africa so we shall leave you to that and hopefully come back and see how you're doing on that book a little bit later but just get us going Greg I mean imagine I'm sat here I'm someone who thinks that investing is all about spreadsheets it's about correlations it's about risk and return it's about calculating the answer And then that's it. I just go ahead and do that. And then that's game over. What would you say to someone like that? Well, it's a fairly good starting point because a lot of good investing is about establishing process. It's about building for yourself a set of rules and mechanisms that you can use to govern your decision making that aren't just shooting from the hip, that aren't emotionally driven. That said, I think an awful lot of 
spreadsheets and numbers rapidly become spurious as the future unfolds in front of us. Um, the world is very, I mean, we've seen that this year from COVID. There will be people who've done well this year and people who've done poorly this year. And in both cases, it will be entirely due to accidental decisions they made six months ago without any knowledge of what was coming at all. So we can very quickly, particularly as finance professionals, get mired in the numbers and the optimization, et cetera. For individual investors, I think there really are three simple rules of investing, and none of them involve a spreadsheet. One is put your wealth to work. Don't leave it sitting in a bank account for five or 10 years. Two is when you put it to work, don't put it all in one thing, diversify. And three is once you've got it in, in a diversified way, just leave it alone. And I think for 90% of investors out there, if they did those three things, they'd be much better investors than any amount of pouring over spreadsheets will make them. I really like that, the three-step process. And I guess when you're thinking about individual investors, and, and as you said, kind of emotion can very easily come into it. How do you sort of characterize the different types of emotion that different investors feel on an individual basis? And maybe we'll move from those sort of characteristics to how you tackle some of those behaviors as well. Well, there's so much to pack in there. If you go through the behavioral economics and the behavioral finance literature, you can go onto Wikipedia and Google psychological bias of decision making. You'll get this endless list of 160 different ways in which we as humans are all irredeemably irrational and stupid and fallible. It's not a useful way of looking at the world. And so people are emotional in a vast range of different ways, depending on what's happening in their immediate context. And I think there are two that are particularly important to investing. One is the fear, the reluctance, shall we say, to get invested. It links to a whole lot of things, but by and large, many people who have money that they don't need in the next five years are underinvested and underrisked with that money because taking money from somewhere safe and putting it somewhere risky in the short term feels like an emotionally challenging thing, emotionally harmful, emotionally difficult thing to do so people don't do it. That reluctance of taking on pain in the present for a much more certain future upside is important. The other ones, I think, are related to what you do when you're in the market. So often there is the opposite of that. There's this action bias. There's this tendency when you're engaged with risk to want to be doing something all the time to control it. And the reality is, in investing, we have far less control than our emotional selves are trying to convince us that we do. And it doesn't matter where on the spectrum you think the right answer to the question of how involved should I be with my investing, the right answer is less than you think it is. <laughs> we could all be moving towards the left. And that's actually quite comforting, I think, probably, isn't it, to hear for investors? Yeah, what we're all doing as investors constantly, there's a trade-off between the sensible thing to do for my long-term financial needs and the emotionally comfortable thing for me to do now. What we should all be striving to do is not to turn off our emotions, but to find ways of assuaging them in a planful and efficient way, rather than finding that we're suddenly very stressed in the moment and then doing something dramatic or draconian and expensive in order to get the emotional comfort that we need. Yeah, it's exactly that. I 
maybe we'll come back in a second to exactly how one achieves that because that's I suppose is key to part of this. But I've heard you talk before and you made a really interesting point then, which is that and you sort of alluded to it just now, is part of behavioral finance sort of dismisses us as yeah, these irredeemably irrational people. We get emotional, we sell things when we shouldn't, which is just such a dumb thing. We make these dumb decisions because we get all scared and emotional and it's all just so silly and stupid sort of thing. What I've heard you say before is that's actually not quite true. You actually made a case for it can actually be logical. It can be a logical decision from a certain perspective to sell your investments, your equities after markets have fallen. Do you want to talk us through how that could be true? There's different degrees of logical there, but I would definitely say that it is not irrational to sell at the bottom, as many of you to do. And the reason for this is when we invest, in fact, when we just exist as humans, measuring the monetary value of our portfolio is not the only thing that's important to us. And you have been invested and markets have plummeted. Let's take March this year. There were people who did sell at the bottom and they've had a very immediate <laughs> set of feedback that that may not have been a very good idea. But you know, was it irrational for them to do so? They had already lost a large chunk of their portfolio. That no doubt causes them stress and anxiety. They're in a situation where we're going into a global lockdown in a pandemic. There's every possibility at that point that markets may go lower. And these people are perfectly justified in believing that if they lose more of their wealth, particularly if their income streams are drying up at the same time, that they may be in real trouble. They may be running out of financial liquidity. So putting the brakes on things there is not irrational because you get very real things in return. You insure yourself against those future losses. You get relief. You get emotional resilience and emotional comfort. Now, the question is not whether or not that is valuable. Of course, it's valuable to be able to have relief and get on with your life. The question is how much you're paying for it. So what happens when people sell at the bottom is it's not irrational. It's just typically expensive. It's a very expensive way of getting the emotional comfort that you need to go on with your life. And often it's expensive because it's done rapidly in the heat of the moment, under stress, in an emotionally driven way. And so there are other things that we can do at those times that are perhaps less dramatic, that may give us the emotional comfort that we need to continue, may give us the insurance that we need without basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Can you talk us through some of those things? I'm really... <laughs> the first thing there is to take stock. So I'm in the moment. There's a pandemic kicking off. I've lost my wealth. I'm stressed. And clearly, there seems to me at that moment, a huge benefit to being out of the market because I eliminate the fear, etc. The question is, to what degree is that fear well justified? Is there actually a problem for my long-term plans to that extent? Or is there not? Maybe what I need to do is get out of the market a little bit in order to put aside some money to make sure that I have secured the next 12 months of spending or whatever, but not just everything. So the first thing is to step back and do a review of what are, in fact, my spending plans over the next one year, two years, three years. To what degree is this a problem for me? How have those plans changed? So do a, a taking stock, which does two things. One is it tells you, how big is the problem in reality rather than my emotional perception of the problem? Two is it takes me out of the short term and starts to put my mindset into a longer term context, which means that I'm going to be making a more rational decision. And then the third thing is, are there other things I can do? 
rather than sell at the bottom? Can I cut back my spending in order to build some of the financial resilience I need through increasing my savings rate or decreasing my spending rate rather than instantly selling everything I've got? So that's basically making the link between sort of level of finances and, and actions in, in relation to finance and well-being. So kind of the financial well-being aspect of it, isn't it really? Yeah, it's really interesting. And there's two things there, right? So there's, of course, an emotional part of financial well-being. How comfortable are you? How resilient do you feel? And that is important. And we should be prepared to pay emotional insurance for emotional insurance. We should be prepared to give up some returns to make sure that we are emotionally resilient, particularly at times of, of crisis and stress. And ideally, we build up that resilience beforehand because it's more expensive to do it in the moment. But the other thing is, of course, is less behavioral. It's being able to step back and actually take a clear-eyed view of the financial realities of the situation you're in. Because sometimes our perceived financial stress is quite different from our actual financial stress. Yeah. And you're saying that, you know, step back and take a clear-eyed view. I mean, that's <laughs> it's awfully easy to say, isn't it? And it's almost like you give someone a slap and tell them to stop being so emotional sort of things and difficult thing to follow. So are you sort of envisaging that as a conversation with an advisor, really? Because that is what is going to help you step away from the some of the short term? Advisors can certainly help with that, yes. I mean, individuals can do a certain amount themselves if they know what to do, if they know they need to take that side perspective. And there are Certain things that you might do, there's a just might not be an advisor, it might be the phone a friend strategy. You're stressed, you know, someone who's not as emotionally close to your financial disaster as you are. Let's talk to that person. So that's important. The thing I would say though is if you've left the finding of emotional comfort, of emotional resilience, of emotional liquidity, we might think I can make this distinction between financial liquidity and emotional liquidity, you've left it until the crisis. Even the best advisor in the world is going to struggle to get you to take that long-term perspective when you are already in a state of panic. The real thing here is the people who deal best with those market crises are the ones who are going into it prepared because over the previous three, four, five years, they've built up some financial resilience. They know that they have set aside some money to cover expenditure for six months so they don't have to dip into it right now. They have built contingency plans of what they plan to do when the moment hits. And they have an advisor to hand who knows them well and is able to advise them. So the preparation here becomes much, much more important than any tricks you're going to pull out of the bag in the moment. Yeah. I love that phrase, emotional liquidity. It's got so much resonance, hasn't it? And it just sounds so much better than contingency plans or preparation and stuff. I mean, we talk a lot with our clients, which you normally talk to institutions about contingency plans and preparation. But I think emotional liquidity is is such a more resonant expression, isn't it? And it's important to find stuff that's tangible and resonant with people when you try and describe these things, isn't it? It's vitally important because so much emphasis is placed, well, actually, arguably, not enough emphasis is even placed on financial liquidity. When you come to something, everyone's trying to optimize everything beforehand and leaving the money on the side as an insurance policy or insuring as an insurance policy People often haven't done enough of that. But when markets crash, very seldom are people in the situation where they need to liquidate their entire portfolios for reasons of financial liquidity. I mean, you'd only need to do that if you needed all of that money to be spent on something right now. Most people who sell at the bottom of a crisis 
do not do so because they have run out of financial liquidity. They do so because they've run out of emotional liquidity. And so it's the emotional resilience that's the real trigger to the behavior in the crisis rather than the, the financial resilience. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Greg, what you think people's attitude to risk management is in, I guess, normal times, in inverted commas, versus the sort of period that we've seen during this year. But I think you've probably just answered my question, really, in terms of the the emotional liquidity aspect is a really good way of thinking about it. So, Greg, how does software and technology come into this? Because that was part of your sort of job description. And so far, we've talked a lot about human behavior. I guess I'm interested in how technology then interacts with that. Is it because humans don't understand human behavior as well as the technology or is it partly tackling those behavioral biases? It's a little bit of both. So part of the problem here is that humans' assessment of our own long-term needs is always biased by our short-term emotional state and the information we're looking at in the short term, etc. But what's really important is to note that people are different. So we cannot give someone the right investment portfolio for them by finding an efficient frontier and simply picking off the risk return trade-off that's right for their long-term financial needs. Because we don't live in the long term. To get there, we have to survive through the short term. The short term is where it is not just my risk tolerance, my willingness to trade off risk and return in the long term that matters. It is all sorts of behavioral things that are going to impinge on my ability to stick with the right answer along the way, are going to govern my emotional responses. So at Oxford Risk, we have off-the-shelf psychometric profiling tools that can measure up to 15 different dimensions of financial personality. This is an answer to your question in two ways. One is, We as individuals are very bad at an accurate subjective assessment of those dimensions and how to split them out and how to use them. So we can use technology to give us more accurate objective measures of who someone is and what their likely behaviors are. And that should be supplemented by discussions and subjective overlays, et cetera. The second thing is keeping track of someone on X number of dimensions, plus what their portfolio is doing, plus all their behavior, et cetera. Humans are very bad at making decisions in a fast-moving, complex world where they have to juggle lots of moving parts and bring data together. So the technology is extremely useful to basically keep track of complexity and then surface to the advisor or to the investor to say, well, we know your personality is like this. You are a low composure individual, a high impulsivity individual. We know that your portfolio has dropped X amount in the last two weeks. And we know because we've been observing your online behavior that you logged in over the weekend. So you've seen that. Based on what we know about who you are and where you are financially, we can crunch the data to suggest things, suggest actions to the advisor or suggest actions to the investor that are hyper-personalized, but nonetheless built on a clear-eyed objective assessment of the facts in front of us. Those personality dimensions, that is really key, isn't it? Because in the traditional view of risk tolerance, I might go to a website and it might be told, you're in your 30s, therefore, we're going to give you an aggressive portfolio. You've got a high risk tolerance. Here's your portfolio. It's got loads in equities. 
oops, it might go down a little bit every now and then, but don't worry about it. You're an aggressive investor and that's your risk appetite. Whereas what you're saying is there's a much more nuanced view of my personality that might say I could be impulsive. I could be very prone to take actions and do bad things, which is just totally missed by that sort of one dimensional view of my long term kind of risk and return. Right. It's very tricky. We would talk about there being in order to find out the right level of risk for you to take of your portfolio now, there are three categories of things I need to know. So the one that you've described is how old are you? When are you going to retire? What's your salary? What's your expenditure? What's your balance sheet look like? That we would call risk capacity. That is your financial ability to take risk. You could have two people with exactly the same financial circumstances, exactly the same age, retirement date planned, whatever. And one of them is simply more willing to place at risk the chance of not achieving some long-term goals in order to potentially shoot the lights out. That is your willingness to take risk. So we have willingness to take risk, your risk tolerance. We have financial ability to take risk, which is your financial circumstances. And then the third one is then your behavioral capacity to take risk, your behavioral ability or your emotional ability to take risk. Because even if you have the financial ability and the long-term willingness to take risk in the long term, you're a low composure individual and are likely to be a nervous wreck. That should change how you think about what you invest in from the outset, because you should be in a portfolio then that slightly dampens the chance of the emotional highs and the emotional lows, because if you're experiencing them, you are that person who is more likely to shoot yourself in the foot. In terms of the behavioral aspect, you mentioned the sort of psychometric type tests, and and I think probably a lot of the listeners and myself included are familiar with those in terms of kind of personality types and all that sort of stuff. When you're looking at the willingness to take risks, so, you know, two individuals, same financial circumstances, how do you measure the different willingness to potentially not achieve that goal? I guess you could also have two individuals, same financial circumstances today. One of them wants to buy a Lamborghini when they retire, and the other one is quite happy with a, a slightly more moderated lifestyle. How are you measuring those sorts of aspects? So we use a a sort of very robust academic approach to assessing this. And in the same way as academic psychologists will measure personality dimensions like extroversion, introversion, or neuroticism or, or whatever, we have a bank of hundreds of questions that we have given to thousands of people around the world. And then we use these statistical techniques basically distill out of these questions those which people answer in a similar way. So the questions that are pointing us to the same underlying psychological trait, if you like, we can measure those things. The important thing here for the purpose of investing is when we talk about willingness to take risk, even that can have multiple dimensions. So there's my willingness to trade off risk in return 30 years down the line. And then there's my willingness to trade off risk in return today. And that's where the important distinction comes between risk tolerance and behavioral ability to take risk. A lot of the tests out there are not good measures of long-term risk tolerance. They're more measures of how do you feel about taking risk this morning? How you feel about taking risk this morning is a very, very bad basis on which to build for someone a 20-year portfolio. So you want to use these very objective, statistically grounded methods to try and separate someone's stable, long-term risk return, trade-off willingness, et cetera, from all of these other behavioral dimensions, which is the stuff that kind of, it's the you that wants to lead you astray from your long-term desires, if you like. The one is a risk is your star to steer by. 
all the other stuff is the stuff that tempts you away from that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because this trading off of short and long-term risk just goes through so much of, of investing. I guess we're talking there the difference between, say, using a portfolio volatility or a drawdown metric being focusing on the short term versus the chance of you not keeping up with inflation or the chance of you not delivering your the income or whatever you want in retirement as long-term risk is just much harder to get your head around. But it sounds like what you're saying here, Greg, is that the added issue here would be great, wouldn't it, if you could just ask people, look, are you emotional? Are you likely to behave badly in bad situations? But I presume it's just not as easy as that, I guess, because unfortunately people, what's it called, revealed preferences or whatever, you can't just ask them these questions because the answers won't be any good, right? Absolutely, because mostly what, if you ask people a difficult question, people don't like to not answer questions. It's about them, right? What is your risk tolerance? Well, of course, that's something I should know, but it's really know what you mean. I don't know how to answer what my willingness to trade or risk in return is 20 years down the line. So what people do is they substitute for the question or one that is easier to answer. And they give you a very confident answer. My risk tolerance is whatever it may be. But the question they're answering is more, how do I feel about risk this morning? It's very difficult unless you're using solid psychometric techniques to separate the context from the underlying stable dimension. So if you just ask people, what is your risk tolerance? There are two problems with it. One is the correlation between that and proper risk tolerance psychometric assessments is only about 40%. So it's pretty low. I mean, it's positive. People don't get it entirely wrong. But the other problem is it will be unstable and pro-cyclical in the sense that people will typically tend to tell you that their risk tolerance is higher when times are good and markets are higher. And they will typically tell you it's lower when times are bad. You don't need me to sit here and tell you that the right way around is buy low, sell high, not the opposite way around. But if we ask people how much risk you take and in gen- how much risk are you happy to take, in general, they give you a higher answer when markets are high and a lower answer when markets are low. You're effectively institutionalizing and locking in this tendency for people to buy high and to sell low. Yeah. God, that's really interesting. It is, isn't it? So Greg, I've seen some of your stuff that referred to the idea of advisors practicing what they preach. I just was interested in your thoughts on that. I think it's vital. This emotional behavioral stuff, it's very easy to read a textbook and go, oh, well, other people do that. I can recognize it when it happens, etc. Unless you are investing yourself, unless you are measuring your own behavioral foibles, your own weak spots, etc. And then starting to think, how do I build myself the tools and the mechanisms and the procedures to help overcome that? I think it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of those you're advising. An important point there, though, is do not impose your rules on your advisees and do not impose your right answer on your advisees. This is more about being able to generate empathy for behavioral failures rather than assuming that your behavioral failures are the ones that others share or vice versa. So it is important to treat every client as an individual or as a group of individuals. But I think unless you have experienced the angst from having a rule that says, I need to sell this now and rebalance into that and watching yourself struggle to do it because it doesn't feel emotionally comfortable in the moment, it's quite to sympathize with clients who are going through the same thing. Yeah, 
I couldn't agree more with that, actually. And, and yeah, one conversation that I've been having with my clients, I suppose, the last year or so is, is this idea of moving away from UK biased equity portfolios to more global portfolios, which tend to have more in the US. That's been a tough psychological move to do for a while and has only got tougher and tougher and tougher. So I've wanted to make myself make that same move where I you know, manage my ISAs, my pensions and stuff, forcing myself to do that same thing. And yes, I found out that it is quite difficult to do because it, it is frustrating that the UK equities have not quite kept up with global and making that switch is hard. So I completely agree with that. And another point is just on, on market timing. I mean, I've sat in so many meetings and said to people, don't market time. And then suddenly I might have a lump sum to invest and maybe I'm investing my ISA or something one year. And suddenly I'm thinking, oh no, I don't want to invest today. The market was up 2%. And then tomorrow's not a great day either because something happened. You sat there so many times and said, don't market time. And then it comes to it and it's just so hard to resist. So walk the walk, but remember that there are different financial personalities along the way. Cool, Greg. Well, it's been a great conversation. Perhaps you could draw out what one thing would you like listeners to take away uh, from this whole episode? Patience, I think good investing. The one thing that really comes for free, if you've done a little bit of work to figure out what money you have, that money you don't need in the next few years, the thing that's on your side always is time. People often refer to, to investing as being akin to gambling. And there is something to that in the sense that our uncertainty about the future is absolutely enormous. So don't try to predict, don't try to time, don't place too much confidence in skill, etc. The really big difference between investing and gambling is when you go into a casino, you're playing against the house. The house has the odds in its favor. And if you play, on average, you're going to lose. In investing, the opposite is true. If you have money to deploy for long periods of time, and you don't deploy it, you sit on the outside, you are playing against the house relative to being in, you are going to lose out. So use time and use the fact that there is a risk premium. There is a positive return to investing if you have patience and if you have the emotional liquidity to sit it out. Fantastic. And Greg, possibly linked to that answer, I suppose, what would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think the most underappreciated thing about investing is that it does not have to be complex. People trying to sell you lots of complex solutions and using a lot of jargon and telling you why their solution is three hundredths of a basis point better than someone else's solution. To get returns, you don't have to engage with all of that. Keep it super simple. Put your money to work, spread it out as much as you can and leave it alone. After that, you can start to think about, well, where do I take it from there? But the problem most people have is they go, I don't want to invest unless I'm going to get it absolutely right and pick the best. And so they sit in the sidelines or they try to find these arcane complex solutions. Just start doing it in a simple way and you will be pleasantly surprised where that leads you. Yeah, letting the perfect be the enemy of the good is uh, my pet peeves as well, certainly. So Greg, I know you've been on many podcasts yourself. So really keen to hear what recommendations do you have for the listeners in terms of podcasts they should check out? Yeah, well, I suppose I should mention the one that I had already mentioned at the, at the start here about tracking and investing. There was an episode of Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best about two years ago, where he interviewed Boyd Varty. And I, I recommend that and, and, and that podcast, which I think he's renamed now a little, is worth listening to. To be honest, most of the podcasts I listen to are not specifically around finance and investing because I think there's a lot that we can learn from bringing stuff from outside. I'm a sort of avid listener to Sam Harris and his Waking Up 
Oh, Making Sense, he called Everyone keeps renaming their podcast. <laughs> Sam Harris, Making Sense, is just the most clear-eyed, articulate conversations on the most difficult and taxing issues that are out there. And that's well worth a listen from everyone. Fantastic. Well, we'll link to both of those in the show notes. Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think we probably could have talked about this all day with you. So thank you very much for joining us on Investment Uncut. A pleasure. Thank you. Much enjoyed it. Thanks, Greg. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Thanks. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.